0: So, we are done with Proverbs. We did an 18-week study in Proverbs, and I really enjoyed that. It was a great time to go through that and just see how it could apply to our lives. And we're starting a new book, as you can see, in large print on the screen up here. It's the Prophecy of Habakkuk, and that's how I'm going to say it. Some people say Habakkuk. The Hebrew version of that is something akin to Havakuk. That's probably way off, but it's something similar. So you can say it however you want, but we're going to say Habakkuk for, for this study because that's how I know how to say it. It is the eighth book of the twelve, what are referred to as the minor prophets in the Bible, situated between Nahum and Zephaniah. And the minor prophets is a term that was coined by St. Augustine in Judaism. It's simply these books are referred to as the twelve. It's the eighth of the twelve. There's three chapters, there's 56 verses, very short book, and authorship is attributed to the prophet Habakkuk, although little to nothing is known about who he actually was. His name only appears in this book, and he's not mentioned or referenced anywhere else in Scripture. The author provides no biological information regarding his lineage, where he came from, his employment, his marital status whether he had children or not, or his personal hobbies, interests, we know really nothing about him other than what is recorded in this book. And that struck me just right off the bat, just as in this age that we live in in and of personal identity is such an idol. When everyone knows everything about everyone, when everyone is seeking credit and attention, it's somewhat disconcerting to be studying a book. You're like, well, well, how do we know he knows what he's talking about? How do we know who he is, where he's coming from? Like sometimes we need to have that information to really lean into what someone is telling us, right? That's, you watch these YouTube videos and they have all these credentials. And okay, that gives me a reason why I want to listen to this person, why I should do what he says. And we don't have any of that information from Habakkuk. When we live in a culture that only values things shared publicly... When we're suspicious of someone without a robust online presence, it can be hard to value a life lived privately and devoutly in the presence of God. That almost is such an anachronism now, right? Where someone is content to just worship God themselves and not have everybody else know what they're about. But that's precisely what we see in this book. It's a very intimate and personal relationship between Habakkuk and his Savior. And what we're going to see throughout this book is that he questions God, starts out he questions God, he waits on God, he hears from God, and ultimately praises and worships God. And it's that whole process of that through these three chapters The book is essentially a private conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord, and that's unique among the prophets. There's not a point within Habakkuk where he's addressing the people of Israel. That's what I'm saying. In all the other books, there's portions where the people of Israel are being addressed directly by God. In Habakkuk, that's not the case. It's simply, again, Habakkuk questioning God and God answering him. Habakkuk waiting on God, hearing from God, and there's really, like I said, no direct prophecy to the people of Israel. And I also think that's interesting because so often we think we need to be doing more, right? We need to do more. We need to speak. We need to do or work. And yet Habakkuk, what he does do, what he's faithful to do is to record this this encounter he has, and then he's content to let God use it as he wills. He's not preaching. He never witnesses. He never promotes himself. And yet Habakkuk is perhaps one of the most important works in all of Scripture. And we'll get to that later on. So there are some things that we do know. I know that's a lot of things that we maybe don't know. But right at the beginning, Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle That Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he's identifying himself as what? A prophet. He is a prophet. That's something we can glean from there. That's the only way he's identified. Now, prophets in the Old Testament came from all different tribes and from all different walks of life. They were often just normal men and women who were called specifically by the Lord for a specific purpose. Some of you may remember the prophet Amos. He was called from being a simple shepherd and farmer. Amos 7.14 says this, and this is Amos talking, but he says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Sycamore figs, did I say that right? So he's basically saying, I didn't ask for this. God called me. God, I was a shepherd. I was a herdsman. I was a farmer. And here I am now prophesying the words of God because God called me into this. Now that's Amos, but with Jeremiah, we see something different. He was from a priestly line. As we're told, Jeremiah one one, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So Jeremiah provides that information from us, kind of shedding some light on his lineage, where he's from, where he's coming from. Now the fact that Habakkuk was a prophet does not in itself tell us from whence he came, but does tell us he was close to God and he was willing to be accountable to God in a very serious way. He's referring to himself as a prophet. He's taking that upon himself, but the Lord takes false prophets very, very seriously. And in Deuteronomy 18.20, it says, Moses writing, The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, speaking of God's name, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And that's how God looked at false prophets. If they're coming to you and I haven't sent them, they deserve death. But Habakkuk here is willing to identify himself as a prophet. That opens this door to say, man, he is willing to stand in that place. He's willing to be accountable to God. The other thing that goes on to say in Deuteronomy, if something a prophet says doesn't come true... He's a false prophet, and you need to kill him. That was pretty severe. That's how they looked at it, though. That's what he deserved. And they said, don't listen to them. Matter of fact, he should be executed. So Habakkuk, again, is willing to stand in that place, identify himself that way, and be accountable to God that way. And this is why he's identified with him, but he's identified by him, and that's why he saw. That's why he heard. That's why he was answered, and that's ultimately why he was able to find contentment and peace in God's will, which is how this book will wrap up. Now, there's some other things that we can deduce from his prophecies. We can, the time that he wrote was around 600 B.C., and they say that because Babylon was not yet the world power that it would become. It was kind of in its ascendancy. And God's saying, I'm going to use these people to judge the nation of Israel. And for, so we know that those prophecies came before that actually happened. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So if you work back from that, that's about the time frame that this prophecy would have been written. The earliest manuscripts were actually found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, along with some other um, manuscripts. And it's, a, it's almost an exact um, duplicate of what we have today. The Dead Sea Scrolls match up very closely. There's some very, really minor syntax. The thing in the Dead Sea Scrolls is chapter 3 is not included in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Just some history there. Now, there's some legends and speculation surrounding who... Habakkuk was, and I love this kind of stuff. This is stuff I like to get into. But how many chapters in the book of Daniel? Anybody know? We're getting ready to study Daniel. How many chapters? And the pastor's wife, again, excellent student of Scripture. There are 12 chapters that are considered biblical canon in the Bible, 12 chapters. But if you have a Catholic or Orthodox Bible, there's actually fourteen. There's two apocryphal chapters that are included in the book of Daniel, and chapter thirteen has to do with a story of a lady named Susanna and her husband Joachim, and they're, um what they go through is a story of where Daniel is presented as this. He comes in and he kind of saves the day. You can read that on yourself. It's a cool story, but it's just a story. Chapter fourteen is a story that is often, that chapter is referred to as a story of Bel and the dragon. And it's a story of how Daniel refuses to worship the false god Bel, and he exposes this false god and the deception of the false priests, which results in the execution of all these false priests. What it was, the the priests had like a fake door into the temple where Bel was housed. And so every night the king had this allotment, they would sacrifice, you know, they were bringing all this food, all these del- delicacies and everything for Bel, the God, and in the morning, it was all gone. And so, it looked like the God was devouring all these things, and Daniel's like, no, that's not, that's a fake God. And, and so, the king, they do this test, and they seal the door. Well, Daniel scattered ashes all over the floor, and the next morning, the king came in and says, see, all the food's gone. Bel's a real God. He says, well, look at the floor. And they can see footprints of the priests and all their families, and Daniel exposes this great fraud of the bell. Now, later on in that chapter, he destroys. They, they also had some sort of live dragon. This was an animal, and they referred to it as a dragon. And they also worshiped that, and Daniel exposes that um, it's not a god. He feeds it these cakes. He makes it these little explosive cakes, and he, it blows up and dies, and then everybody gets really mad at Daniel, so they throw him into the lion's den. Okay? Here's where Habakkuk comes in. So Habakkuk is minding his own business in the land of Israel, and the angel of the Lord comes, he's he's got this food and he's prepared, he's getting ready to go eat. And the angel of the Lord comes and grabs him by his by his hair and transports him all the way to Babylon into the lion's den where Daniel is, and they have a meal together and they kind of have a conversation. And then he's transported back to Israel, and the next day Daniel's fine, and it's this story. Anyway, that's the only other, that's this thing where Habakkuk is used in this kind of bizarre way, where he's transported into the lion's den to feed Daniel and to have some fellowship with him while he's, while he's in that place. So those are, some, those are some apocryphal stories, but that's the only other real reference in Habakkuk. And that's not, that was, that's not something the Jews had in their tradition, that's something that was added later, later on. Now, another speculation is that Habakkuk could be one of the temple prophets that are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1, or even a Levite. And that's because chapter 3 is a psalm, it's a song. And at the very end of that, it says, you know, to the choir master with stringed instruments or something to that effect. And so some people think that because of that reference, he may have been one of these temple prophets. Now this one, I don't know about that, but this this one seems to make actually a lot of sense to me. And we're going to kind of go through this. So Jewish tradition does identify Habakkuk as the son of the Shunammite woman who we're introduced to in 2 Kings chapter 4. That's who they say Habakkuk was, that he was the son of the Shunammite. And if you might remember, it was this miraculous event where she was barren, Elisha the prophet promises her she's going to have a son. Sure enough, she has a son, but then the son dies later on, years later, and Elisha comes and raises him back from the dead. So the Shunammite, much like the woman we studied in Proverbs 31, she's introduced to us as this wealthy, industrious woman. That's the first thing it says about there's a wealthy woman, wealthy Shunammite. She's the matron of a large agricultural operation. She's hospitable, charitable, sensitive to the work of God. But again, she was barren. She had no children. And Elisha the prophet, on his travels, used to pass through this small town of Shunem on his travels. Now, Shunem was this small rural rural village located in the Jezreel Valley. It's in the northern section. It's southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and Elisha used to pass by there. I'm going to read this real quick, 1 Kings 4, 8 through 11. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So, whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food, and she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. So that gives you this little background. This lady, she sees this man of God. She wants to do something nice for him. She has no children. So she kind of transfers that care to Elisha. Now, Elisha, touched by her care and recognizing and appreciating her sacrifice, he desires to bless her in return. And he calls her into there. He calls her in. And he says, well, first he's, he's talking to his servant Gehazi. And he says, what, what should we do for this lady? I want to do something really cool for this lady for what she's done for us. And she doesn't ask for anything. That's interesting. She makes this kind of odd reply. She's like, basically, I'm content where, I'm at, where I am. I, I dwell with my own people, she says. But at the prompting of Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he promises her a son. He asks Gehazi, he's like, what should we do? He says, well, she's, she has no child and her husband is old. And this is what Elisha said to her, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. That word embrace, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant, but the woman conceived. And she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And that key word embrace, embrace. So that root word The root word, that word is habak, habak in Hebrew. That sounds like and looks like a lot of people think that's the root word for the name Habakkuk. So that's where they get that. That's where they say that word embrace. And we know in the naming conventions in the Old Testament, oftentimes that's what they would do, right? They would name their child after a certain emotion or a certain event or something like that. So that's where they put that together. Now, that word embrace is used, you know, a good many times in the Old Testament. And it, it's a word denoting not only holding something, but cherishing something. Something not only embraced physically, but with our heart. It speaks of treasuring something, a loving, total acceptance of something. And we can picture the joy and love she had for her only son her miracle son of promise, who she loved and embraced with all her heart. Again, the story goes on to say that one day he goes out to the field and he has this terrible headache. It sounds like um, in, the, in the account he's saying, my head, my head, and it sounds like an aneurysm or a stroke or something like that. She takes him in her arms. She embraces him. She takes him upstairs. She lays him on the bed after he dies, after being with her. He basically dies in her arms, and she takes him and lays him on the bed, and here we begin to see this lady's faith play out. She doesn't cry. She doesn't scream or wail, and she tells her husband, saddle the donkey. I need to go and see the man of God. The husband, the father, does not know that his son has passed away at this point, and He's like, why do you have to go see the man of God today? Like, it's not a Sabbath. It's not a special event. Like, why are you going there? And all she responds is, all is well. All is well. Her son is dead up on the bed of the man of God, of Elisha's bed. And she says, all is well. Now, on her way, Elisha sees her from a distance. He sends his servant Gehazi out to meet her. And again, all she says to Gehazi is, all is well. All is well. But when she comes to Elisha, she falls down and grabs his feet and cries, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And we see this woman's broken heart, but it's like that that thing when she first responds, all is well. I think that really speaks to the place of where she's at. I think she knows things are going to be okay. Elisha travels to Shunem. He brings the child back to life. It's a really strange account. He sneezes seven times. And then she takes her beloved son in her arms and embraces him again. So again, we see in this account, this remarkable woman brought to the extremity of faith. We see death and tragedy, but also resurrection and a new life. The story of the Shunammite is not over at that point, though. We see her again later on in Second Kings. After raising her son to life, Elisha had warned the Shunammite of an impending seven-year famine in the land. And he tells her, you need to leave. You need to go out of this land because this famine's coming. And out of obedience, she sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years in a foreign land. She lost everything. She had to leave. Like I said, they had this prosperous, wealthy estate of some sort. She had to leave everything behind for seven years, take her son, and go into a foreign land. She did, I mean, think of the faith and the obedience that it took to do that. When she returned to Israel after seven years, she found her property occupied by squatters. So she went to the king to appeal for her land to be restored. And these are this is one of those incredible, like, God-ordained coincidences that we see throughout Scripture. Because when she appears, so during all this time, Gehazi got fired. Okay, basically, Gehazi got fired by Elisha, and somehow he ends up in the court, in the court of the king. And the king is asking him, like, just tell me all this great stuff that Elisha's done and all the things he's done. So Gehazi is sitting here uh, recounting the miracles of Elisha. And he happened to be talking to the king about this Shunammite and about how God had raised her son from the dead. And then all of a sudden, she walks in, right as that story is being told. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 8. My Lord, this is Gehazi speaking, My Lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So, the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields. And that's an important thing, too, when we get in the produce of the fields, figures largely in Habakkuk. Restore all of that from the day that she left the land until now. So, again, we see this woman and her son at the center of this great story of faith, of the loss of everything, and of divine restoration. And not only restoration, but even more so, all the profit and increase that she had lost during those seven years was restored to her. Now, all that to say, we're going back to who Habakkuk was. Let's not get too far out there, who we think he might have been. In addition to Habakkuk's name, there's some other clues that seem to support Habakkuk as the Shunammite's son. The time frame is right. The time frame is right. So, based on when Elisha ministered and the fall of Babylon and where th- where this guy would have lived, that time frame kind of works out. The literary style, this one I think is really, really interesting because the literary style of Habakkuk is very refined and it's thought to be written by a highly educated individual. And if you think about it, as the only son of this wealthy woman, this wealthy family, it can be assumed Habakkuk received a good education. Again, that's just speculation. The prayer in chapter 3, in which Habakkuk references numerous agricultural activities, he's referencing the blessings that um, that God gives in terms of the produce of the fields like we talked about. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. And, and he's talking about all these things that have an agricultural Uh, reference, crops and herds, speaks to someone with an agricultural background and familiarity. And finally, we see in the book of Habakkuk a similar spirit and life experience to someone like the Shunammite son, someone humble and close to God. We never knew this woman's name. We don't know her name. She's just the Shunammite. That's like saying you know the canyon city in <laughs> you know it's like say where they're from that's all we know about her someone humble and close to god someone who's experienced tragedy and hardship yet has also experienced blessings and miracles in their life someone who's not interested in personal accolades but is concerned with the work of god and the well-being of others that's something we see in habakkuk too he's just really crying out For the sake of his nation. It's not just for himself, it's for what his nation's suffering also. And someone who can say all is well when confronted with unimaginable circumstances. Again, we don't know for sure. I just thought that was a really interesting thing to kind of to kind of look into. But I think it's possible um, for those reasons. Now some content and themes about Habakkuk. The main theme, what is the main theme, right? Like, what's the main theme of this prophecy? And it's how we can grow in our relationship with God from a place of dismay and doubt to a place of absolute faith and joy. Some, some subplots in there, or how can a just and loving God allow evil to prosper and allow the wicked to even destroy God's people. And this is a theme that's throughout a lot of other scriptures. We see similar complaints and questions from King David, from Job, and some of the other prophets. And it's a relevant question today and one that we all need to be able to answer for ourselves and for other people. Um, We did a men's Bible study here a few weeks ago, and that was one of the things that Curtis brought out and did a great job as far as these are things that the world is, is, this is one of the reasons they choose to say, I don't believe in God because of these types of things. How can we answer that? How do we come from a place of um, confusion and doubt to a place of assurance and joy and faith? And that's one of these themes here. Other themes include the vital importance of communicating with God, waiting on God, hearing from God, and being content and joyful in times of privation, loss, and trial. And I love how God's Spirit works in all this, because right before this service, Brad comes up to me, and he was just like, we're just, he was talking about, you know, do we, do we know how to hear from God? That's such a huge part of this book, and I hope that we all get and look at that, and see how Habakkuk does that, and how he He not only, again, questions, then he he makes time. He makes a space. He goes intentionally to wait, to hear, to hear what God would say. So, as we talked about at the beginning, there's three chapters in the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear or cry to you violence, and you will not save? And that's kind of this first salvo that Habakkuk starts this prophecy with. He's coming to God with some pretty challenging questions. How long? How long are you not going to listen to me? How long are you going to allow this violence and this evil to go on? And that begins this conversation between Habakkuk and God. In chapter 1, we see a man who knows God intimately, who is distraught at what he sees And yet he seeks the Lord for his answers. He doesn't seek answers from philosophy, from the world, from education. He does not seek peace or righteousness in ritual. I think that's really important too. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't offer a sacrifice. He just goes straight to the Lord with his his heart open. He He petitions the Lord directly, saying how long and why. And these are questions that are natural for us to, to ask in times of trial. How long is this going to go on? We talked about like when you know my wife's sick. She, I know others have been sick. How long is this going to go on? When am I going to feel good again? And those are natural things to ask. Chapter 2 begins by Habakkuk determining to wait for God's answer. And I love this part here. Habakkuk 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. My complaint. And again, this is so essential in our relationship with God. We're often very good at complaining, at questioning. In Proverbs, I loved how it brought out this, this part where The flesh is what questions. It's the spirit that gives answers. The flesh always has a question, why, when, how, what, but it's the spirit that gives answers. We need to make space and time to listen intentionally and expectantly. Time for quiet, time for open and sincere. Time's in God's word, number one, right? That's how we're mainly going to hear from the Lord as we go into his word, it's a personal listening, though. And sometimes, if we just take the time to be quiet, God will bring things to our remembrance, too. Remember how you did this thing the other day? Oh, yeah, God, I'm sorry for that. Do you remember how you said this? Do you remember how you did that? Do you remember how you doubted me here? And God will bring those things to our remembrance if we just get quiet and make time, and we can uh, take those things to Him. Now, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, are these four are these five woes against the Chaldeans. And this is something in Judaism they refer to this passage as the taunting riddle. And it's these five uh, woes, but it's there's there's a lot of good content in there. But it's five woes, three verses each. And you can look at those verses, 6 through 20, and kind of break that down. And we're going to study that on its own one week. Chapter 3. Ends with this psalm or song of Habakkuk. And chapter three is so different from chapters one and two, some have even questioned whether it's written by the same author. Because it's just it's a departure. It's something it's something different. But what I what I see here, and some others, you know, some other commentators, is that radical difference isn't because it's a different person, it's because it's a different perspective. It's the complete transformation. Someone who has been enlightened and renewed in faith. Someone who's relinquished fear and doubt compared to one who has heard from God and has chosen to believe in God. Again, it's not a different person, but a different spirit. It's the same person inspired by a new outlook and revelation of the power, ability, and love of his Savior. I think we've, maybe some of us have come to that point where, we've, where God has allowed us to see something so differently that if we wrote an article about it two weeks ago, it would sound so radically different from our, the perspective that God's allowed us to see in that. I think that's what we see in um, chapter 3. Again, this last, this verse uh, is such, this, this beautiful resolution that he comes to at the end of um, chapter 3, 17 through 19. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So some summary to summarize, and there's some references. I I really think we come back to the key verse in Habakkuk. The key verse, if there's one verse that we want to remember out of these three chapters, is in Habakkuk 2.4, and it's the second part of that verse. It's not even the whole verse, but it basically, the righteous shall live by faith. Does that ring any bells? Anybody heard that? The righteous shall live by faith. This verse was considered important enough to the ancient Jewish rabbis that it was considered to be the summary and encapsulation of the entirety of all 613 commandments or mitzvot. Okay, They thought there were 613 total laws and commandments. And the Talmud mentions Habakkuk along with David, Micah, Isaiah, and Amos as all having passages that establish all 613 of those laws in a single passage. But only Amos and Habakkuk do this with one verse. So that's how important the, the, the rabbis thought this particular thought was, this particular verse. There's a, there's a part in the Talmud and again, I'm not some Jewish scholar. I just looked all this stuff up on the Internet. So you guys can do the same thing. Okay, so I looked this up, and there, you can read the whole Talmud on the Internet. I mean, it's massive. It's huge. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages, thousands of pages probably. But there's a part within the Talmud that's called Makot, and it's, it's section 24A. And here's what it says. Habakkuk came and established the 613 mitzvot upon one. As it is stated, but the righteous person shall live by his faith. So what that rabbi is saying in the Talmud is that that comprises all of the other commandments. What's interesting is the Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee of the strictest training, undoubtedly knew the Talmud and was familiar with this teaching, which the Lord completed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what's so mind-blowing about that. If you really get that, like the Jews were right. They were right about that. But they were wrong about where their faith was to be placed because their faith was in the Torah. Think about that. That's what they meant by that. The righteous shall live by his faith in the Torah. That's what they thought. The Word of God that to live in faith, to keep all of those 613 commandments, that's what that faith meant to them. They were right. What they didn't understand though was that Jesus Christ is the word himself. He says he came to fulfill the law. So if you think about so that's when Paul brings it all together. He quotes it in Romans, Galatians, and if you believe he was the author of Hebrews also. This verse not only forms the epitome of the Jewish laws and commandments, but serves as a baseline and summary for Christianity as well. He would go on to write in chapter 10 of Romans, the Apostle Paul, here's what he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The just shall live by faith. That's what he's talking about. So that's the key verse in here. I hope you all remember that. And I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for the entirety of it. I pray as we read and study it, Lord, that we would bring it alive in our obedience to it. Truly, Lord, it is like that two-edged sword that you tell us that cuts through our motives, our egos, our agendas and um, Lord but we know also you came in flesh and blood and you lived among us and you showed us what it what it really looks like the entirety of it the wisdom of it and Lord we um, again we thank you as we go through this study the next few weeks I pray um, again What anytime we study the word the whole point is that we draw closer to you that you make us more like you, that we could love others as you love others, that we could give of ourselves, die to ourselves, that we could live unto you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.